Matthew. Let me invite you to turn with me in it to Romans chapter 4. We're actually going to be looking at uh, verses 1 to 17. So a little bit more than what's reflected in your bulletin. But before we do that, I wanted to say um, thank you for your support of our ministry on campus at Kansas State with Reformed University Fellowship. Um, we, I, I couldn't go a day without re- knowing that y'all are praying for us and that we have your support in the work that we do, and thank you for that. I also wanted to say, back out in the lobby on the, my right-hand side, there's, there's a table with some envelopes like this. And what's inside, there's a picture of our family and also a way to connect with us. If you're interested in being on our mailing list or learning more about our work with students on the campus of Kansas State, I'd love for each household to take one of these. and just stick, If nothing else, stick our picture on your fridge, and when you look at it, pray for us as we labor with students there. Um, but there's ways to connect with us in there, so if you wouldn't mind grabbing one of those on your way out, there should be enough for one per household. If you would, that would be great, and we would love that. Um, as we turn our attention to Romans chapter 4 this morning, I was reflecting on this week in preparation for our time together this morning, the, the reality that, th- this, this reality that seems to be increasing in my lifetime, though it's probably always been the case, and the reality is this, our world is obsessed with righteousness. Our world is captivated, it, it, it fills our thoughts and our minds, and if you don't believe me, think for just a moment. What, what, what do I mean when I say our world is obsessed with righteousness? Think of righteousness as simply this. It is being the right kind of person and doing the right kind of things. Okay, that may not be helpful, and every English teacher I've ever had would, would castigate me for using the word to define the word, so let's try a different approach. Think of th- this idea of righteousness um, following the, the ancient philosophers who would describe it as something like pursuing the good, the beautiful, and the true. When I say that our world is captivated by righteousness, that's what I mean. We are, we are obsessed with this thought that there is a right kind of person with, that we're supposed to be that is good, that is beautiful, that is true in its, in its outlook on life and the way that we live our lives. And we have to figure out what that is and we have to live accordingly. Think about what it looks like to live in the world in the 21st century. There are, there are those with, with standards about what we do with our trash, about what the words that we speak, the words that we don't speak, and how we speak to one another, and so on and so forth. We're talking about Dr. Seuss in part because of these realities. Because there is a standard out there, and our world is committed to trying to achieve that standard as a way of life. Now, many of us may feel like that standard is a moving target and it gets frustrating and overwhelming at times. But the reality is there is this standard. It's a fundamental question of humanity. What is that standard? Or to put it in biblical terms, what is this righteousness? The follow-up question, of course, is once we figure out what the standard is, we have to ask ourselves, how do we fit with that standard? How does that standard apply to me? Am I the right kind of person that that is? Am I living a life that is worthy to be followed, that exemplary, that, w- that others would consider good, that others would consider virtuous, that others would consider in line with reality? We're asking, what is righteousness? And the follow-up question is, how does my life fit with, with, that, with that standard of righteousness? As we think about those things, I want to tell you up front, this is why we're starting here. It's because of this. Righteousness is the question of the book of Romans. You see, early in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes these words, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. The gospel, the good news, is the pow- good news about Jesus is the power of God for the salvation of all who would believe. Then in the next verse, he says this, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. 
You see, bound up in this gospel, this good news about Jesus, is the revelation, the description, the appearance of, God, of the righteousness of God, that thing that we long for, that we long to know, that we long to follow, that we long to be in line with. Paul continues in the book of Romans, though, to say this, the reality of our circumstances is that when the righteousness is revealed, so is the wrath of God. God's personal response to all who would reject him is his wrath. It is not flippant, it is not rageful, callous anger. It is God deciding to stand against those who would stand against him. And so the question, the, the second set of questions, how does our life fit with this righteousness? It does not is the answer. Even for those who have the word of God, even for those who have the law of God, who have the stories of God's people, who know his faithfulness, even for us, we, we can find ourselves in this place where we are opposed to his righteousness. That's Romans 1 to 3. But then in chapter 3, we read this. The righteousness of God has been manifested. It has shown up. It has appeared before us. And he goes on to say this. Through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe. Beloved, the beauty of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that the righteousness of God is apparent in Jesus. We need the standard. We need to know his righteousness, his goodness, his beauty, and his truth. And we also need to not be consumed by that. We need to know that we don't face his wrath. And, and in Jesus, we have the hope. We have the hope that the righteousness can be ours through faith for all who believe. Biblically, we, the, the, the term there is justification. What we realize in the gospel, as Paul says at the end of, near the ends of Romans 3, is that God is both just, he's the righteous one, and he's the one who makes us just, who makes us righteous, who justifies. Beloved, this is the beauty of justification by faith alone. This is the hope of the gospel. And with that in mind, we're going to pick up, the, pick up Romans in, cha verse, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. What shall we say then was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. For what do the scriptures say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And, the, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that had come by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that the righteous, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to, the, to, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. 
That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of, all, father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. The grass withers, the flower fades. Please bow with me as we consider these words together. Father in heaven, we cry out this morning that once again you would send out your light and your truth, that they would lead us, that they would guide us, that they would take us to the place where you are. Father, we long to know you more. We long to be, to be known by you more. Father, we long for your righteousness and we long for the salvation that awaits. Holy Spirit, we trust in your presence and in your guidance as we open your word together now. Give us understanding, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. There's a 2002 movie called Changing Lanes that has fascinated me ever since I first saw it. We meet two men early in the movie. One of them is an up-and-coming lawyer who's young, attractive, successful, um, has the right job to put him on the path to make a lot of money and be set for the rest of his life. The other man we meet is a down-on-his-luck, recovering alcoholic whose world is literally falling apart. He's unemployed, his wife is planning to leave him with his sons, and he doesn't know which end is up. And as the movie unfolds, one of the subplots is the lawyer, played by Ben Affleck, finds himself in a situation where he starts to gain a conscience. And he starts to realize that the law firm, where his father-in-law is one of the key partners, is filled with all kinds of criminal activity and lying and cheating and stealing simply to get ahead. And at some point during this crisis of conscience, he realizes, I need to go to the authorities and deal with this. And just as he's about to confront his father-in-law, he realizes, he learns from his father-in-law that, that forged documents have been filed in his name to cover up all the things that he's been a part of and that the firm has been doing. Basically to say, it doesn't matter anymore, we're done. You can, and, and his father-in-law, in fact, goes on to tell him, go to Texas, find somebody's life to defend from death row. In other words, feel good about yourself for a while and then come back and we'll get going on with what we're doing here. In other words, nothing will change. But at a key scene in the movie, his father-in-law says to him, this is a tightrope, you gotta learn to balance. And Ben Affleck's character looks at him and asks him, how can you live like that? And he responds, I can live with myself because at the end of the day, I think I do more good than harm. What other standard have I got to judge by? That's the question of righteousness. What other standard do I have, he asks. And his answer is very simple. There really isn't a standard other than what I determine myself. So as long as at the end of the day I feel better about myself, about the good things that I've done than the bad things that I've done, I'm going to be okay. What kind of standard is that for us? Does that satisfy is it, is it enough to come up with the answers to ourselves? Biblically, I think we have to say no, because righteousness is bound up in who God is. But this is the challenge that we face. But in that thought, in that thought that we can, can we look at our, our, the end of our day and see more good than bad and be at rest with ourselves, I think there's a hint at something that even Christians will wrestle with when it comes to justification, when it comes to this question of righteousness. And, and the issue is this, how quick are we to look at our lives on any, at the end of any given day and say, well, I did okay today, I didn't do enough bad things, or my bad habits didn't overcome my good habits today, so I'm going to be okay. 
We see our sin, we see our struggle, and we figure that as long as we do more good, then that we can be satisfied with that. But, but my question for us this morning is, is that enough? Now, what's fascinating about Paul's approach to, these, to this question of righteousness, that, that the gospel says to us that Jesus is the answer we need, that he is the standard, and he is the provision for us to meet that standard. I wonder how many of us are quick to say, yeah, 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 I get that, I get that. Next, please, tell me the next thing. Tell me how to really live my life today. Tell me the things I'm supposed to do to be okay at the end of the day. It's interesting to me that Paul doesn't run that fast ahead of us. In fact, I think what's happening in chapter four is he says, pause for a minute, and let's talk about what I've just told you. Let's unpack together, he says, this reality that says that Jesus is the answer you need because he is righteous and he is your righteousness, that, he, that his righteousness is given to you. And that's what I wanna do this morning is pause for just a moment to consider where he takes us in chapter four to wrestle together with what we have, what, it would, what he would have for us when we think about our justification. So to begin with in, verse, in chapter, chapter four, verse one, where does he start? He starts in a, in a logical place for the first century Jew. It, 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 from what we see in the book of Romans, most of the, the church in Rome was probably composed of Jewish, Jewish people who had become Christians. There are my glasses. I knew they were somewhere up here. And, and what he asks is this. He says, what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? He's simply looking to, to Jewish believers and saying, Abraham, the one that we all look to, the fountainhead of our, the people of God, what did he learn about what I'm talking about? You see, because for the first century Christians, many of them were asking, is this something new? Is this something different than what we grew up believing? Is this, some, is this completely disconnected? And so he, he brings up Abraham and he asks, he, he basically sets up this simple argument to say this, if Abraham was justified by what he did, by his works, then he would have reason to boast. That's the major premise of the logical argument for those of you who are following along with that. The minor premise is this, Abraham was justified by works and the conclusion is this, therefore he has reason to boast. Now even before he can complete the argument, Paul says, no, it doesn't work that way. It falls apart because Abraham was not justified by what he did. And he actually looks back to Genesis chapter 15, one of the earliest chapters of the Bible, and what does he see there? In verse three, he tells us what he says. It says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now understand, what's happening in that moment is God had, had, had called Abraham out of his homeland and told him to get on the road and move to a place that he'd never seen before. And when he arrived there, God appeared to him in Genesis 15 and says this, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. And Abraham, in effect, says, thanks, but no thanks. God, you know I have no offspring. You know I'm old and my wife is old. She wouldn't want me to tell you that, but my wife is old. And where we're stuck is we can't have kids. So you can give me a reward, but I'm going to die before too long. And when I die, there will be none to take over my estate except for a servant in my house. What's the point of giving me a reward? And in effect, God's be God begins to tell him, a pro God begins to make promises to him that he reiterates repeatedly in these early chapters of Genesis. And what he says is this, Abraham, I will make you a great nation, not through your servants, but through your own flesh, through your own flesh and blood. I will give you a son. And eventually he tells him, I will make your name great, you will, and you will be a blessing to the nations of the world. This is the promise of God. And then when, what we read in Genesis chapter 15, 6 is what we see there, that Abraham, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
Now, as we look at, as Paul begins to explain this in verses 4 and 5, notice what we see there. He says in verse 4, to explain what he just read, he says this, Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as as a gift, but his due. And then in verse 5, he goes on to say, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You see, what he's, saying to the, what he's saying is this, the righteousness that we long for that Abraham was given is the righteousness that is received. We, we hear the contrast there. He says, imagine two kinds of people. There are those kinds of people that work and get a wage, and we'll come back to the second kind in a second, but to those that work they, they, and, get, and get a wage, what they get is their due. They, they get the wage because they put in their time. We know how this works. This isn't rocket science, is it? That the wage is, is not a special gift. We wouldn't even call it a gift, as, as Paul says. It's simply, it's simply given to the one who does the job. And what he's saying is that's not how righteousness works. That's not how justification works. He invites us to sit in this and to see what he's saying is this. And, and I, I need to pause here and say this is one of the most inopportune uh, sermon titles that I ever came up with because I wrote it before, I came up with it and gave it to Pastor Brian before I even wrote the sermon. And so I really don't want to talk about math today at all. But if you need that, if, if part of you needs me to say something about math, here it is. The Jesus math in this equation is this. You get to count what's not yours that you didn't earn, but it's in your pile anyway. That's what you get to count. That's what righteousness is. It is, right, it is a righteousness that is received. All that we long for and all that we need we simply receive is what he's telling us. Now, now, now think about this in, in this context. A while back, my son was mowing a lawn of, for a friend, and we were finishing up, and I was taking him back. We were wheeling the lawnmower back to the van, and a guy flagged us down about a trailer and a couple of lawnmowers. He was running his own lawn mowing business here in town. And he flagged my son over, and he said, hey, excuse me, could you help me out with something? My push mowers are all dead, and we have to finish this little small plot of land in the backyard of this home, and I can't reach it with my riding mower. And Jack said, of course, we'd be, happy to do, we'd be happy to help you out. It took less than 10 minutes for him to, to do all of this. And I, was, I walked back to the car and let, let Jack settle up with this man. And I could see that something was up as Jack talked to him. And Jack pushed the mower back to the car. And he came up to me. I said, Jack, what, what happened? And he showed me the wad of cash that this man had given him. Like, it, it was... It was one of those moments where my son appropriately was like, I didn't deserve this. I didn't do anything for this. And I said, well, I think he's trying to you know, encourage you because he realizes you're a young guy getting started out trying to figure your way out, your way in things. And, and he needed your help and you were able to help him in a way that it would have cost him a fair amount to, to do this job himself. But my son you know, still looks at me he's like, but I didn't deserve this. Okay, what Paul is telling us that the situation with, with Abraham, when we receive righteousness, it's even more than that. It's far more than that because we don't do anything. He makes it clear because the contrast in verse 5 is not with someone who works a lot versus someone who works a little. The contrast is with someone who works and with someone who does not work. And notice what he adds to that in verse 5. This person does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Those people who don't practice their faith faith well or at all. Those are the people that God justifies. You see, what he's trying to say is he's trying to say righteousness is received and righteousness is given. It's what he means when he goes on to, to, to cite Psalm 32, which is what's what we see there as he references King David there in verses 6 through 8. What is King David's experience? King David's experience is very similar, is it not? It says David also speaks of the blessing of the one to, of whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Righteousness is received, 
because righteousness is given. It's beautiful, isn't it, that he would talk about forgiveness, that, he would, that, that God is the one doing the counting. He's the one doing the given, giving and saying, this is all yours. This is the blessing that David experienced, that Abraham experienced, and that is ours also, beloved. The call for us is to believe. Think about what Paul says in another place in Scripture, in Ephesians 2.8, that, that for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is, a gift of, it is a gift of God, not by faith, so that no one can boast. There is no room for boasting, because we did absolutely nothing for the righteousness that we receive that God himself gives. Beloved, the call for us is to believe. That's where Paul starts, to, to live in this reality that says, this is what is offered to me by God's kindness to me. By calling us to count what we've received and been given, God calls us to walk away from looking at our achievements, looking at our accomplishments as the thing that will satisfy our need for righteousness. Who are you trying to prove these days? Is it your spouse? Is it a prospective spouse? Is it your boss? Is it, is it your kids? Is it your parents? Who are you, whose standard are you trying to live up to? What are, you looking to? what are you looking to to find your place in this world, to prove yourself to the world? Is it your job? Is it your home? Is it your GPA? Is it your children? What signs in your life are pointing to establishing righteousness on your own? Is it given and is it received or is it accomplished by you? Is it in your, the, amount of light, the amount of sleep that you can go without on any given week? Is it in, in the way in, that you can always be available for anyone, that you'll never say no to anyone? Or is it that you're never available and that's how you prove yourself? Do you, do you see the, ten, the temptation that we face when we think we have to establish our standard of righteousness? Because we all do this, almost without thinking about it, most of us. We feel the need to prove ourselves. We run from discipline even at, at points in our lives because, we, we, in other words, we run from trying to, to, to improve ourselves because at the same time we're scared of what we'll find. We run from God's standard for the same reasons. Now let me be careful, in here, and say, careful here and say this. Accomplishment and achievement are not evil. The early chapters of the book of Genesis make it very clear that we were made to work. This is not Paul's call to laziness on your part. We'll come back to that in a moment, but it's, it's not that at all. But what it is is to ask ourselves, why do I do what I do? What am I chasing? What am I waiting for to be that thing that will fully and finally satisfy me once and for all? Fast forward, it will not satisfy, no matter what it is apart from the righteousness of Christ. The other thing I want you to see here is that there's a freedom in receiving what God gives. As scary as that may sound to some of us to have to put our complete trust in another person and another human being, it actually sets us free. Because the pressure is not on us to perform as if our standing in this world is based completely on what we can do and what we can think and what we can say. When I say the call here is to believe, what I'm saying is the call is to find the freedom of the gospel, to believe in what, is, what, is, what you can receive and what is given for you. As we keep looking through the passage, notice where Paul goes next. He asks, helpfully asks another question in verse 9. He says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? And then he goes on to say this, what about Abraham? Was it, and then in verse 10, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? 
Again, it's the logical follow-up question as he narrows his focus because he knows that that's what his, his readers are thinking for sure. What, what do we do with circumcision then? Was, was righteousness really received by Abraham and given by God in that moment? And notice what Paul's answer is as he continues on in verses 9 through 12. Understand this, for the Jewish people, circumcision was the thing that set them apart as God's people. Genesis 17, about 14 years after Genesis 15, God appears again to Abraham and says, you know, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. And he invites him into to formal, formalize their relationship through a covenant. And part of that relationship is that Abraham himself would be circumcised as well as all of the, the, male, off, the male offspring in his household and all that would follow after him. And for the Jewish people, this became sort of a, there are two kinds of people in this world kind of mentality for them, the circumcised and the not. We are the circumcised and everyone else is the not. It's, the, it's the, one of the original us and them sort of ways of looking at the world. And what Paul says is, he says this in the first part of verse 11, he says, look, understand, what he's saying there is understand this, circumcision was important. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a mistake. It was a sign and a seal of the righteousness that Abraham received. And what that means is this, circumcision was given, it was a physical reminder given to the people of God to remind them of the righteousness that God gives by faith. And it was a seal, it was an authenticating marker that God himself had given to them as an official seal of that righteousness. It didn't give them that righteousness, it didn't establish that before them, but it was a reminder for the people of God. He's saying circumcision isn't nothing, but notice where he goes in the second part of verse 11 as he continues on. In the second part there he says this, he says, the purpose was to make, the, make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. What he's saying here is he's saying, look, circumcised or not, it's all the same righteousness. It's all one righteousness. You see, the, the, in, the, in the Greek, it's actually more stark than what it says there. It doesn't use the language of before and after, though it fits with what he's saying. What it actually says is, so was Abraham circumcised or not? Was he in or was he out? And Paul's surprising answer is, he was out. God proclaimed him righteous without any of the trappings that I've given you later on in, in time and in the course of history for my people. There is one righteousness. Those who are out have no greater need than those who are in. Those who are in deserve it no more than those who are out. That's the message here. There is one righteousness that is given to the people of God. And with that, what we see in verse 12 is that there's also one faith. Again, look with me at verse 12. And to, him, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So even for those who are circumcised, what matters is not the physical mark. What matters is the experience of faith as the way by which we receive the righteousness of God. There is one righteousness and there is one faith. There's another movie from the late 90s, I think. I don't even remember the title of it. It's something about a, a volcano erupts in the middle of Los Angeles and all the, you know, everything fall, starts falling apart and the lava is spreading and people are dying and it's going crazy. Toward the end of the movie, as the ash begins to fall from the sky and falls on the people, those who are, are left anyway, there's this, this scene near the end where you see all the people kind of in the streets looking up into the skies and the ashes raining down upon them, not burning them up somehow. It's cool enough that it just lands on their faces. And they all look the same. And of course, there's, there's the, the, the obligatory little kid that says, hey, look, we're all the same. Yes, we're all creatures made in the image of God. 
But there's something, there's something more that's what's said in this passage. When I say that there's one faith and one righteousness, what God is describing for us does not erase our differences. It does not erase the differences of our past or our present of what life is like. It does not erase our gender. It does not erase our vocation. It does not erase God's call in our lives. You see, what, what, what Paul is saying is here, he's saying we are different. There are those who are uncircumcised. And yet it is the same righteousness and the same faith for all. The same righteousness is offered and the same faith is the way by which we receive that same righteousness. It doesn't dismiss the ways in which we're different. Now Paul will say in Galatians chapter 3 that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no, there is no male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Absolutely. Our standing before God is that we are the same, that there is no, there is no difference whatsoever. And yet... This kind of unity does not have to mean uniformity. It doesn't mean that we will all look the same, that we will all act the same, that we will all be the same kind of people in every detail of our lives. You don't want to look like me. And I don't know that I really want to look like you, no offense. This is how God made us, and, and, and that doesn't change when we, are in, when we are in faith. When we receive the righteousness of him by faith, that doesn't change. But what does this mean for you? What does this mean for you? God is calling us to belong. God invites us to belong and to be a part of his people. I wonder if some of you are hesitant to declare yourself Christian, to, to admit that you actually believe in Jesus, like to yourself, because you think that in some way, shape, or form, you have to figure a lot of stuff out before you, before you do that. You don't have to. That's not the point. I wonder if others of us look at family members who don't yet know Jesus and, and think to ourselves directly or indirectly, well, they kind of got to clean up their act before, they can, before I can bring them to the church. They, they got to figure some stuff out and kind of get these details figured out before I talk to them about Jesus. No. Paul, when Paul calls us to belong, what he's saying to us is he's saying it's for those who are in and those who, for who, who are out. That's for whom the gospel exists. The righteousness of God comes to us all by one faith. It's one righteousness, and that is what before us. There is a freedom in this kind of belonging. Because some of you have come to faith because you showed up. Some of you came to faith because you, you took a risk and somebody dragged you into a church somewhere and you heard the gospel and it changed your life. You didn't wait to belong. Beloved, that's the invitation of God. The invitation is to be a place where, where, where people can belong no matter what. They don't have to fit the bill that we, they don't have to fit our standard, that's not the point. The standard is to hear the gospel, to see our need, to know the one righteousness that God gives, gives and to find the one faith. God calls us to believe and he calls us to belong. If, you, if you're paying attention, you, you may notice that Paul is narrowing his focus. He began in the, in the first eight verses of this chapter by talking about works. And, and, and the way I talked about that is by accomplishments and achievement, the things that we do to justify ourselves or try to anyway. And then that vision narrowed a little bit in verses 9 through 12 as he talked about circumcision. But notice he, he makes it even more narrow as we look at verse 13. Notice what he says as he continues there. In verse 13, he says this, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir to the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. 
Verse 15, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. You see the progression? He's getting narrower. And here he's challenging us to, to consider the promise of God, not first the law of God. He'll do something, make a similar argument actually in the book of Galatians. And, and what he says this, what's the promise there? He says the promise is that he would be the heir of the world to come. Now nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that Abraham is promised by God to be the heir of the world to come, that he's going to own it all. What Paul is doing here is he's summarizing the promises of God that are given to Abraham between Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 17. Promise that he would be a, he'd become a great nation, that his name would be great, that he would have a land to dwell in, and that he and his offspring would be a blessing to all the nations of the world. That the promise of God would be a global phenomenon is the, is the promise that is made there. And this is the promise that is shared with us. This is the promise that God gives to his people. He says it repeatedly in verses, what I just read in verses 13 to 15, that this is the promise for the people of God, that Abraham and his offspring would be the heirs of the world. Now, ultimately, this means the eternal life in God and knowing him in all eternity. But part of what this means that we can't overlook is that he's talking about a global experience. And if you need me to nail it down for you, it's this. You and I believe because this is true. This was written to the city of Rome 2,000 years ago, at the time, there was no indication that it would have ever received our coastlands. And yet, here we are in 2021, reading these words, and we realize this has come true because we share in the promise to Abraham. And the gospel continues to spread around the world, not because our nation is the center of Christianity by any stretch of the imagination, but because God is faithful to his promise that is shared by all. But notice what, all, what he adds to this in verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. You see, the point here is this. It matters that this is about faith, that, it, it, that it's not about what we do or accomplish, and especially that it's not about any religious practices that we might be proud of our ability to perform. Bound up in this is the grace of God, his unmerited, steadfast favor towards his people. Our performance is not the issue. It's about God's grace. We do nothing so that we are reminded daily that it is not our accomplishment that, it, that does this, but that it is grace that justifies us. When I was in high school, I, I can't remember the specific moment, but I remember learning how to swing a hammer for the first time. You know, anybody ever taught you, like, anybody who like, really knows what they're doing taught you how to swing a hammer before? You know what they tell you? They tell you, you grab, the, you grab the hammer near the bottom of the handle as much as you can because as much as you choke up when you do that, physics tells us that we're losing leverage and we're going to lose power and you're going to mess it up. So you grab it by the bottom of the hammer so that the, the head of the hammer can, can do the, what it's supposed to do as you swing it. And as you swing the hammer, where are you looking? Are you looking at the hammer? No, you're looking at the head of the nail. Because if you look away from the head of the nail, you're going to hit something other than the head of the nail, or you're going to hit it off-center, and it's going to bend, and you're going to get frustrated and create new swear words at that point, or some variation on that theme, right? Just hypothetically speaking. The point is this. We need the hammer to pound the nail in, but we don't look at the hammer. That's what Paul wants us to know about the law of God. You see, the law matters because it is a reflection of the holiness of God, of the righteousness of God. Without God's law, we would be lost. And yet, if we fixate ourselves only on the law and our performance of it, 
we're not going to live as God intends for us to live. It's like looking at the hammer and not looking at the nail. You've got to look at where you're going, not where you are. And that's what, that's what Paul sets up for us. The why here is crucial. The New Testament is filled with examples and, and with this tension for the, the people of God. Because what do we do with this Old Testament thing that we have? Do we chuck it out altogether? Absolutely not. But what do we do with it? Does that mean that, that justification depends on my ability to do all these detailed things spelled out in the law? And Paul says, no. Because if it was that, it wouldn't, salvation would not be by grace. Do you hear God calling you to bless the world as a result? The goal is not for you to figure out how good can I be. The call of God is to love him and to love your neighbor as yourself. And the beautiful thing about the, the promise of God that we're talking about here, this promise and this call to bless, is that the promise is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus, the one who said this at the end of Matthew chapter 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. This is the call of God to his people. This is the promise of God, and this is by the grace of God. You have the freedom to set aside your need to perform, to pretend something that you're not. God is at work in your life changing you to make him more like Jesus. And what he wants for you is not to be a better Bible reader, though he does want that. That's not his goal in your life. His goal in your life is not to do everything exactly perfectly so that no one is offended by the things that you say or do. His goal in your life is that you would love him and love one another well, even, the, even your neighbor, even those around you. God calls you to believe, to belong, and to bless. So what is there for us finally in this? I think it's something along these lines. January 20th, 1953, Dwight David Eisenhower was inaugurated, was sworn in as president of the United States. He had campaigned on a platform in part of, foreign, largely, largely about foreign policy. If you, if you know your history like I didn't and had to look this up, in 1950 there was a conflict that was started in Korea that for political reasons we actually weren't allowed to call it a war, but that's what it was on the Korean Peninsula. And as, as Eisenhower was campaigning, he, he, he campaigned that he would actually make a visit to Korea, which he eventually did, and then he would put an end to the Korean conflict. Now, on that day of his inauguration in January of 1953, at that point, the war was still six months from being ended, and Vietnam was still a couple years down the pike. But, but he said this to the audience that was there listening. He said, the peace we seek is more than a stilling of guns. It is more than an escape from death. The peace we seek is a way of life. Beloved, justification, that which is offered to you for free as a gift to be received by faith on nothing of yourselves, is a way of life for the people of God. What is that way? It's the way of belief. It's the way that says, I'm receiving something that is given by God. I have the freedom to be honest about my imperfections, about my failures. I have freedom to be honest about my doubts and my fears and not have to run away from God because it's not based on that that I am who I am. It is the freedom of belonging, of learning to, to belong, to open our eyes to see the needs of those around us, to welcome the outsider, the stranger, into our midst, into our homes and into our church and into our lives. It is the freedom of blessing, to see the, the fullness of the gospel go forth, not only in us, but through us to the watching world. Beloved, this is the call of justification by faith. 
This call is true and this call is real because the doctrine is true and the doctrine is real. I want to close by reading to you again from, from Romans chapter 4. Look with me finally at verse 17 and then we'll skip to the end of the chapter. In verse 17 it says this, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And then jump ahead to, the, to verse 23, which I did not read earlier. That is why faith has, was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespass and raised for our justification. Beloved, this is the hope of the gospel. God actually still raises people from the dead, from the spiritual death in which we find ourselves to bring new life. Jesus rose from the dead to, to, in part to let you know that you are justified by faith alone. This is the way of life to which he calls us. Let's pray. Gracious God, this is far too good for us to believe and embrace on our own. We ask that you would give us what we need, that you would pour out an abundance of your spirit in our midst, even, even today, to be reminded that the gospel is indeed true. And that our, our status before you and before the watching world does not rest upon ourselves in any way, shape, or form. Let us hear this call to freedom, we pray. In your name, Jesus. Amen.